Welcome to the 1000 Day Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I am not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol and I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same. Like right now, and I got a little bit of help with in the shape of Grace Beeson. How's it going, Grace? Hey, Lee. I'm doing really well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey, no worries. Where are you today in the world? I am in sunny, lovely Durham, North Carolina. Oh, and how have you been managing your lockdown experience? You know, we're really fortunate, I think, in many ways. I know we are, but I've been so grateful for North Carolina, especially during this time, because we have had a gorgeous spring and we've spent so much time outside which is so good for my soul anyway, but particularly in this time, um, it's just been so good to go on walks every day. And I have children who are six and eight year old, years old, two boys, and we've done a lot of hiking and walking. And so we, we, um, all things considered, we are great. I mean, we are beyond happy that school is over. I can tell you that. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah how's how's it been on the client front as if you um have you had an upsurge have you had people uh bailing out and um what has been what has been the impact on your clients uh, as a result of what's been going on with uh covid yeah that's a great question so i have been a life coach for less than a year um, and after having been a wedding and event planner for over 20 years. So it's been really interesting to see what's happening with clients on all fronts. Um, you know, the wedding and event world is uh, on a complete pause, as I'm sure you know. There are no big gatherings, and there won't be for the foreseeable future. Um, and yet, I am still working on two huge weddings for 2021. Um, it's sort of like old habits die hard, so, <laughs> which is funny that we're talking about drinking and a lot of old habits. But, you know, I've been a wedding planner for so long that it's still a way that I enjoy connecting with people and mm -hmm. serving people and helping them. Anyway, it's funny that the clients with events have sort of crept up where I didn't intend for them to and the coaching clients which was on a steady climb um you know it there was sort of a pause with that because everyone um i, I really what i really experienced was people moving deeply into fear mm -hmm. over finances over um just how to move forward with their lives how to carve out time for themselves now that they're home and with their children, because I'm coaching mostly to women and, yeah. and, and a lot of women with children. And I think everyone's just sort of like, I don't know how to make time for myself. Like I was prioritizing my own mental health and spiritual fitness. And now I don't know how to do that. And so what I'm hoping is that now that we're three months in and we're transitioning into summer, um, that while there is still the challenge of having children at home all the time, you know, for those who do, that now we're all sort of getting a little bit more used to our lives as they are now. And we're more willing generally to prioritize our spiritual fitness. And so I'm hoping that the coaching will continue to grow. It's sort of just um, plateaued, I'll say. Um, and I think the drinking is just a really interesting conversation and vital, important conversation during this time as well, because that is something that I think uh, people's non-drinking has something that they've had to prioritize. You know, like we see everything about um, alcohol sales and everything skyrocketing and drinking is through the roof. And so I think what I'm experiencing for myself and for other people that I'm coaching is that just focusing on sobriety and being okay is taking a lot of effort and now we're we're starting to add in like the coaching and the yoga classes and um the other things where we can feel better about ourselves in all the ways that's what i'm experiencing personally and with other clients 
I had uh, an article that came across my mobile phone feed. I dropped it into Pocket, so I will read it at some point. I, I, I haven't read it yet, but the title was uh, basically it was saying that um, uh, during COVID and the lockdown, nothing has changed in as much as the women are still bearing most of the responsibility around parenting, cleaning, um, you know, why, why, why is that? Do you think that um, men seem to be so stuck in? Anyway, it's both, really, isn't it? We both seem to be stuck in these, these, these um, stereotypes. I mean, you must come across it a lot in in your work. What's going on there? Do you think? I do. Gosh, that's such a great question and such a vital point to bring up. That so many women I speak to, clients and close friends talk constantly during this time about how acute the issue of division of labor is right now. And that while there have always been issues with division of labor in most households, the, where the, in a traditional household of a mother and a father with children, that the wife, the mother feels that she's doing more when it comes to a lot of the housework or just all the things for kids, like booking camps, keeping up with field trips, um, you know, laundry, like all the things, right? Mm. Um, but during this time, it seems that that is still the case. And I can absolutely echo that I'm hearing that. So you're asking, why is that the case? I mean, it's such a big question. I think we get so entrenched in our, um, you know, gender roles and women traditionally take on so much. I'm also a firm believer that women are capable of so much that they just do and do and do and take on and take on almost until their backs break or until they have complete meltdowns. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and this is, you know, not surprising then that there is this mommy wine culture because women are so overburdened, so overworked, they don't ask for enough help. Um, for whatever reason, you know, the men are not, generally speaking, contributing as much. Even if they're contributing a lot financially, they're not contributing um, as much in the house with all of the practical, tactical, tangible stuff. And they are not the emotional support to the children in the mm -hmm. house. And so women are looking for any way to escape that they can and by and large, not healthy ways. And that is also highlighted during this time. So it's really, really, really tricky. I think, um, you know, it's a very big issue, but it comes down to women learning how to advocate for themselves and how to focus on self-love and self-care and that is truly the purpose of my coaching is to help women um, get happy with the lives they have find joy in them be able to make changes through advocating for themselves through loving and caring for themselves through saying you know, I am important and I'm just as important as anyone else in this house, if not more, because I keep everything going and everyone needs me and I need to be okay. I need to be better than okay. Mm. Yeah, one, I've been doing, you know, 1000 Days Sober has existed in one form or another for about a decade now. And I tell you, um, I don't ever remember, oh, let me rewind a little bit. One of the impediments I find with women when it comes to being people that don't drink alcohol is they don't plan, schedule, carve out the time that it takes them to work on being sober. Um, there's also a financial aspect of it as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to get a, a woman contact me and say that they can't afford it than a man. Um, but in, in general, it, it's, it's a time issue. So a, a lot of women, they just don't do the work. And then when I'm talking to them about why that is, it will come up that they don't have the time because they're always looking after the children. 
But one thing I never hear, Grace, is a complaint that they've had a conversation with their husband or their partner and that they won't let them have the time. What seems to be happening is they're not even having those conversations. So they're, they're afraid there's something stopping them from saying to their partner, hey, I've got a call with Lee at one o'clock and I want you to look after the kids for an hour, right? That those conversations don't seem to be happening. Why is that? And what could we do to help them break through that barrier? Oh my gosh, you just laid that out so articulately. And yes, yes, yes to all of that. And what, what my immediate response is, what just popped right up for me is that it's not the woman's unwillingness to have the conversation with their partner because they think their partner will say no, because in most cases their partner will say yes, right? Yeah. The woman's belief that she's not valuable or worthy enough to devote that time for herself. Mm. You mentioned something so important and and so true about um, women often saying that they can't afford it. What that's about most of the time in my experience with coaching, and I think really speaks to what you're describing, and in so many aspects of life with women being unwilling to carve out the time or find a way to um, do things for themselves, is that it's not about not having the money. It's about being unwilling to make the investment in themselves. Okay. It's about a lack of self-worth. It's a, it's a, it's a, an inherent belief that women have for whatever reason that they are to come last. And we are, we are taught culturally. And I believe those of us who are very maternal, there are women who have children who are not maternal. There are women who have children who are very maternal. Those of us who are naturally inclined towards being very maternal believe that our children come first. They should get more of our money. They should get more of the time. They should get more of the investment in extracurriculars and health, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, there has been this incredible movement towards women health, women's health and wellness, of course, over the last, I would say, decade in particular, and it's only growing and growing and growing and growing. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. But I think, uh, you know, to answer your question, it, it really comes down to, um, yeah, I think women just not believing that they're worth the investment of time and money. So how do we help them? Oh, I mean, I feel like that's my journey in life right now. If, yeah. if I could, if I could have a conversation with every woman I know, and I've had a conversation with many, but it'd be hard to do it with everyone I know, which is why these podcasts are an incredible opportunity that we have um, to, to share what my experience has been over the last year and a half when I decided at the age of 43 to prioritize myself for the first time. And what has come of that, it would be impossible for any woman to say, I'm not I'm not worth that because the, the outcome of prioritizing yourself is enormous mentally, spiritually, physically, emotionally. I mean, all, all of it. It's, it's sort of like, I've heard you say before about getting sober that it's like putting your foot on the gas pedal, you know, that it's like, it accelerates your life that you're able to do so much so quickly because you've got the time and the clarity and and so when and I just that really resonated with me because when you prioritize yourself all good things flow from that mm. and how do we get women to do that we just keep talking we just keep talking about the benefits of putting yourself first and it's yeah. not selfish no, not at all. I mean, because I mean, if you start from the basis that you can't really change anybody else. So in this, in this dynamic that we talked about with the man and the woman in the relationship, 
Um, and I'm, and I'm, I know folks, for people listening there, that they're all different types of gender relationship, but this is like the most stereotypical um, issue and problem that, that I see. That's why I'm talking about the male, female nuclear family dynamic, right? Um, it, it's, uh, I think you make a, a really good point there and, and things that I, I've never thought too deeply about you know the not willing to invest in themselves feeling unworthy to um even like ask for the time it's not that they're afraid that their partner will say no they don't think they're worthy enough of it um i think for me like you say just being in a group of like-minded people like uh 1000 day sober like strive like uh, any other group out there particularly one where alcohol is an issue and you're trying to deal with it and you can you can talk to women about this who are actually nailed it so they've they've actually stopped drinking they put the foot on the gas pedal pedal and part of that like a jet propulsion is right i'm going to carve out boundaries for myself i'm going to love myself i'm going to demand that i have xyz in my relationship and i'm going to you know i'm going to retain my power and show my power right and to to see that is like very inspirational for people they're kind of like wow she can do it i can do it you know so I think being around the right type of people is really important. What do you think about that, Grace? Oh gosh, I really agree with you. I, I mean, finding people who are like-minded or people who inspire you, a really big thing in my life has been identifying people who have something that I want. And it's not material. I think when I was much younger, it was material. But throughout this process, when I knew I was changing and growing and that something was going to give and that I was, had this inner voice that was telling me to change, I started identifying or telling me to change, but also telling me that there was something more for me. Right. And that I wanted to change. What I started identifying was something in other people that, I wanted and it was in the form of their joy their self-worth their inner peace their outer peace you know how they presented themselves it was about I was finding people that I was drawn there I was really being drawn to women Mm. in particular who had what I wanted in terms of the way they moved through life. And they were very at ease, very self-confident, very self-assured. And it's interesting because I had been all of those things and portrayed myself as being all of those things for years, but I still had the peace of drinking. And there was, there were a lot of reasons for that. And so I think, um, yeah, yeah, so finding people who you identify with and who are like-minded and who are living a life, again, not materially, but are living a life that you want to live, feeling the way that you want to feel, you know? And that is so powerful. Um, and it's just, sometimes really, it entails finding new friends or finding a different group or, you know, doing a deep dive into podcasts or in this case, finding your program where you can get, you know, matched up with people who are like you and go on this journey together. I mean, I think it's, it's extremely powerful to, to have um, people on your side, you know, who who you're looking up to or who are doing it along with you. I mean, it goes back to childhood, doesn't it? You know, how many times have we heard our parents say, or we've said as parents, oh, they got in with the wrong crowd, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can get in with the wrong crowd uh, and it seems to be a modus operandi for most of us when we're younger, then we can get into the right crowd as well. Uh, One word word that um, uh, that comes up for me here is envy. So, you know, sometimes, well, quite often actually, as we're talking about stereotypes, Envy gets a bad rap. You know, people think, well, if I'm envious and jealous, that means I'm lacking in something and I'm, I'm too materialistic, like you said, and all that kind of stuff. I, I actually think contrary to that. So I, I think envy is a good thing. So if you, if you actually are not quite sure who your tribe is, then start thinking about who you're envious of and then start making a list, uh, a bit like Grace said, 
what are the things that I'm envious of in this person? And it could be while this person has their shit together, while this person has a lot of time on their hands, while they look so beautiful, while they um, seem so fit and healthy, while they're always talking about eating so well, they, the great parents, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, uh, but there'll be something about them that you're envious about. And that envy is not to be seen as a bad thing. It's, it's a, it's a good thing, like, because it allows you to put the mirror up and say to yourself, what is it and what areas do I want to improve upon? Not what areas am I lacking, but what areas do I want to improve upon? So, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's exactly right. So well said. I think that that's, that's a great list to make. And it seems counterintuitive. You know, we're taught that it's not a good quality to be certainly jealous or envious of someone, but envy can be a really powerful tool towards getting somewhere you want to be in a really positive way. Yeah, I definitely agree. And for the guys that were listening, I just want to tell you a, a little story um, that I found very interesting. So, uh, I'm at home at the moment with my two in-laws. Uh, they're both in their late 70s. And um, I'm here with my wife and my three-year-old daughter. And my father-in-law, who's a tailor, you know, typically outside of lockdown, he's working seven days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. So he's in the house. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you would have heard me talk to Lisa Dinhofer about how he's always, you know, he's always trying to keep himself busy. And he's always trying to be creative. And I think that's because he knows that if he stops, he, his lifespan will just whittle away, right? He needs, he's lost his meaning and purpose in his shop. So he needs to find it around the household. And something happened the other day that I thought was really interesting. He washed, he, he ate breakfast and then he went over to the sink, which was full of dishes. And he just washed his own pan and put it on the side. And then he went outside and spent the next 12 hours moving bricks around, cleaning up stuff in the garden, chopping down trees. And, and then I thought to myself, why do you not wash the dishes when that is something that you can do that's going to take up your time? Why don't you help me clean the bedroom? Why don't you help me clean the kitchen? Why don't you help me hoover up and mop up? Why, why are you cleaning the garden? And I realized that it is a, it's a really is a stereotypical um, subconscious behavior, right? I haven't sat down and, and asked him about this because I, I don't want to offend him in any way. But I imagine it's because he's categorizing his head through the way that he's been raised as a child, that cleaning the kitchen is a woman's job and cleaning the house is a woman's job. But, but, but tidying up the garden is a man's job. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to raise that for men listening to this, that if you fall into those same patterns, the very least we can do is, is, is be curious about why we, why we do that and why we think. Because a lot of times we won't even be thinking about it until someone like me talks about it on a podcast. So if you find yourself wanting to bust a barbie out and be in charge of the barbecue, but you never cook anybody a meal in the house, if you find yourself like, cleaning the garden and chopping down trees, but you never get the Hoover out. Ask yourself, why is that? I mean, what do you think about that, Grace? Yeah, I know. I, I think that's great. It's a, it's a timely, you know, example. And I'll give you sort of an opposite example from my own family, just to show how different families are. And it's, it's a great example going back to what we're talking about, about women um, needing to learn to, make time for themselves. And I'm a little bit right now of like the cobbler's child who has no shoes because I coach women how to do this and to do this. And in my own house over the last three months, my husband has been advocating for himself in a way that is an, it's an incredible thing. And first I want to say he's very helpful. The division of labor is no question 50-50. He was raised by a wonderful woman who made sure her son was an equal partner um, and contributor, and he really is, and it's amazing. But, so I don't have complaints about the division of labor. However, my husband, over the last three months, has lost 25 pounds. He runs every day, 
and he makes time for himself, for his health, and does not compromise on that. I mean, if there's a moment that he can't do it, he'll find a different time if it doesn't work with our schoolwork or whatever. But he advocates for himself every day and his health and wellness and mental health in a way that I have not done for myself over the last three months. Mm. I have been totally focused on my children and on my career when I can be. I mean, I exercise for mental health and, you know, but it's just to say that it's a reminder that, you know, this is available to us as men to help the women in our lives uh, move forward in their lives. It's available to us to support them, to say, what do you need? Like he'll say to me, what do you need? How can I help you? How can I give you time? And that's something that men can do to be really helpful. Um, but it, it's also available to us as women. We need to find our words, find our voice, find a way to say, you know what? It's just as important for me to get out and go exercise as it is for my husband and for my kids. But no one's going to make sure that I do this if I don't. So I better step up and say what I need. Um, and again, we're just not as good at doing that as women are, as, as men are traditionally. And I look at my husband and his new fit body and I'm like, I got to learn how to advocate for myself like that. Mm. You know, it's really interesting. Um, so. Yeah. I've, I've, I've had the, the similar thing happen in, uh, in my household actually. And it can lead to, it can lead to a lot of conflict, you know, because, you know, from a man's point of view, you know, we, we, you, you, you're going out looking after yourself in what you perceive to be your time. And then if you're like, I'm much more likely to, all right, in lockdown, it's different because we can't hire a babysitter, but I'm much more likely to hire a babysitter to look after my daughter during my time so I can look after myself than my wife would, right? My wife would be like, no, this is, oh, my, sure. time. This is my time to connect with my daughter. Whereas I'm kind of like, well, I have a choice to connect with my daughter. I'm going to get this this thing done, and I really need to get this done. I'm going to have to sacrifice my connection until the weekend or something, right? Um, so I definitely have got myself in a dynamic where I'm kind of taking care of myself, and I'm just thinking that my wife will take care of herself, and she's not. She's looking at me going, well, yeah, he really needs that time, et cetera, et cetera, and I need to look after the kids when I have my time. And then, and then it'll come out in a big bang, right? You know, and I'll, and I'll be like, well, it's not my problem. It's your time. What are you doing? And there needs to be more of um, a recognition and an understanding of what's going on underneath the hood, which uh, what you said right at the beginning about the unworthiness, the not willing to invest in themselves, um, that can't afford it. And we're using this as a metaphor. We can't afford it kind of mentality. Um, now we're talking about it, it does allow me and other men out there to think um, a little bit differently about it and to go out for your walk or go out for your run and then come back and say, hey, get your ass outside and go for a walk or a run. I'll look after the kids for 15 minutes. Exactly. Yes. Because women, women are going to find that super sexy as well, right? Like they're going to they're gonna be like, oh, wow, you really, you really sees me. Like, you know? That is the start of connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that I have someone who cares that I get time to myself, who cares that I am able to do things on my own for my spiritual health and physical health is everything. It's everything to me. I mean, but it's incumbent upon me to take that time and make the most of it. You know, he can't go exercise for me. So, you know, it's just, it's systemic. And a lot of it, it it's, it's systemic, but it's also, it's cultural. It's just so ingrained. And, and, and it's, it's 2020 now. We're learning a lot of lessons. And if we can move powerfully after this, during it, throughout it, and after it, with new things that we've learned and old things we've recognized and realized, 
we will be our most powerful and beautiful versions of ourselves. But we've got to take the time to recognize it. I think the um, the current uh, protests that are going on around the world with the uh, the death of George Floyd, I think I think this is going to spill out into this dynamic that we're talking about as well. I think I think a lot of women will be watching what's going on on the news, and you know, look at it's you know you look at it on the on the tin as we say in the UK. You look at what the label on the tin, and it's about racism, but it's not about racism. It's about, it's about powerarchies. It's about dominant groups and how they're treated different than non-dominant groups. And, and, I'm, and I hope that um, this, what's going on right now outside of the looting and the unnecessary violence, that women will look at it and start standing up, start saying, no, I'm not taking this shit no more, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't feel that we should be in a non-dominant group because I'm telling you, Grace, as a... As a, as a as a man, um, I was raised in a household which wasn't overtly patriarchal, but it definitely was systemically patriarchal. You know, like my dad didn't walk around with a belt in his hand, whipping everyone into shape, but he ate first. He took, he took the bath first and then we all dived in his dirty water after him, wife and kids. Um, he watched what he wanted to watch on telly. He, he had specific rules about how I should be treated when I first started earning. So, you know, when you, when you grow up as a kid and you, and you, you got that role model, um, I am going to be the first one to admit that um, I, my um, motherboard, my foundation as a human being, Grace, is overtly patriarchal. It's, it's I'm the boss, right? And I have to try work really hard. And I'm lucky that I've got a wife that takes no shit. Um, I have to work really hard to go, oh, Lee, you're doing it again. You're, you're going down that road again. Because I don't want my daughter to end up in a relationship where she's married to someone who thinks he's the boss. I wanted to marry someone who's got a 50-50 division of labor and, and meaning and purpose and childcare and everything else. Uh, uh, so it's very, very cultural, isn't it? We're dealing with a real culture issue here. Yeah, it is. It's very, very deep. And, you know, in the same way, I have two sons and it's so important to me that they see that their mother is hardworking and driven, creative, you know, all of the things, but also too, that I prioritize myself and that I take care of myself. You know, there's so many ways in which I want my boys to view the world or, you know, I can't make them view the world in a certain way, but I want them to understand certain things. And I want them to learn about loving and respecting women in all the best ways. And that's, what my husband and I show them with through our relationship. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot to be learned on every level right now. There's no question. And I, I think the conversation that I keep having with everyone is just, you know, we are going to all be better for this. Well, many of us, um, you know, if we can, if we can take these lessons into the future, because, um, there is no doubt we are experiencing, whether we like it or not, a great universal reset. And it's an opportunity. Mm. Yeah, definitely. The, the other thing you, 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 the one thing you missed out there about you, part of you that's a role model to your two boys, is you don't drink alcohol. You are one year alcohol free in yeah. March. Um, why did you make the decision to stop drinking? Yeah, so. I, I think it's been about 15 months now. And it's funny, I was thinking before I was going to talk to you about how long it had been. And the truth is that I don't really mark the time very often because for me, it's just simply something that I don't do anymore. Yeah. And I never ever thought that I would be a person who would say that. And um, 
yeah, so why did I do it? Oh, I loved drinking. You know, I was a person who loved alcohol. I think many people do um, who drink. I thought it was fun. I thought it made me more fun. I, I was really a stereotypical sort of party girl, you know, like fun times, always hosting parties, always going out. Um, but there was this voice that I've mentioned to you before, and I think we all have it. I know we all have it. I call it the inner voice, the pilot light. It's, it's like your, it's your spirit, you know, it's, it's that voice that's always there when you're quiet. And it was a voice that for about 15 years of my life was like, something's got to change here. Like this is not doing you any good. Mm. And, um, you know, I was someone who had a really good career. I had a great relationship. I had children ultimately on and on and on but it was not serving me in any way, the alcohol. It was bringing me down, slowing me down, wreaking havoc on my life, um, wreaking havoc on my spirit, really, you know, because I wasn't losing jobs or anything. But um, so the short answer is that I, I, I did it for myself. I think it took me a long time to realize that I also did it for my children. Um, I think that was really hard for me to even feel for a long time that I did it for my children. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that I did it for myself. And that felt like the most important thing. And it's kind of remains to feel like the most important thing. Cause I wanted to be, you know, without sounding too much like a slogan on a t-shirt, I really wanted to be my best self. And I knew that I wasn't. And I knew that I was a successful entrepreneur. I was a successful wife, mother, friend, daughter, sister, but that I could be so much more and that I could be so much happier without it. And uh, I, I realized only really recently that the, beyond that, the biggest thing was that I think I subconsciously or consciously knew that my children needed me to be steady and they needed to count on me and they needed to know what they were going to get from me. And I was not as steady as I wanted to be. I just wasn't, I couldn't be with the way I was drinking. So um, I removed it and I have found a life that's more joyful than I ever could have imagined was possible without alcohol. Uh, and that is a big part of my message and, and what I want for other women to understand women who are questioning their relationship with alcohol. I call mine a complex relationship with alcohol. Mm. You know, I try not to label it too much, but I describe it as a complex relationship with alcohol with a lot of gray areas. There were a lot of things I did that I am really not proud of, um, but I never want to label it as being this or that. It was complex. And ultimately, it needed to change. And I want for women like me to understand that it's possible. But not only is it possible, it's that we are taught that there is no life without drinking, that there is no fun, there's no sunshine, there's no party, there's no vacation, there's no friend dinner, there's no anything without alcohol. And I am here to say, not only... Are there those things without alcohol? But it is so much more colorful and joyful than you could ever imagine. How did you start? What, what method uh, did you use to stop, actually? 
So this is where I think it gets a little bit tricky because obviously getting into sobriety and quitting drinking is so nuanced. And for 70 years, there was just AA and there are so many different programs and um, now, and of course you have a wonderful program. And my story is, I guess I'll just say my story is different. My story is my own and where it is right now is that I have had no formal program for getting sober. Here's, right. here's what happened with me is that I had a voice telling me something, scratching away, scratch, scratch, scratch. And as a person who devours podcasts and did for two or three years, I came upon this woman, Ruby Warrington, who wrote a book called Sober Curious. And I started reading that. Um, and I was like, God, that really resonates with me. Sober Curious. What is that? What is that? Read the book. It led me down the rabbit hole really on Instagram there, the huge rabbit hole of women, uh, and sobriety on Instagram. It led me to, um, to Holly Whitaker, um, you know, quit like a woman. It led me to Laura McCowan. Um, she, her book it recently came out called we are the luckiest. It led me to a lot of other sober podcasts and women talking about this. Um, and for me, it became almost like, when I say, I, I hesitate to say this because I don't want it to sound like I'm minimizing the process mm. and I don't at all want to intimate that this has been easy for me because it has not. But for me, it started almost as an experiment. Like, what would my life be like without it? Am I brave enough to try? And the voice was so loud that I was like, I can't not try. And my trying when it, it started with a really emotional conversation with my husband who has owned bars and restaurants for 20 years, sells alcohol for a living and, you know, with whom I've spent decades eating and drinking for pleasure. It started with an emotional conversation of me saying, I don't think I want to drink anymore. Are you okay with that? Like, can you be okay with that? you know? Mm. And he said, you're a hundred percent your best when you're sober. And I want you to do whatever is right for you. And I support you. So my experiment started like that Lee, and it went on for days and weeks and months. And this spiritual journey just, uh, it was like a snowball effect. And it led me to just a lot of personal growth, self-discovery. It led me to training to become an authentic leadership coach, a life coach. Um, and, and so um, what I'll say now is that while I'm 15 months in, it's a long time and it's a short time. And I remain totally open to, um, to different programs. I, I'm open to trying and doing all different kinds of things. Mm. And so I just, that's where I am, Lee. I just remain open. What I can tell you is that I'm happier without it and that every day I choose not to drink. And there have been some really hard moments, mostly over the last four months in quarantine or three months. Um, and I still make that choice not to drink because the, um, the price is too high. You know, it's, it's, it, 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 I know logically that that first sip of rosé, that warm feeling, that first glass, like that's what I want. And then I know where it goes from there. And I know how I wake up feeling and I'm unwilling to live with shame, regret, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera, ever again, ever again. I'm just not, you know, I'm just happier without it. So I remain open, but I don't have a formal program. Uh, that's good. And you've done something really brave and courageous by putting yourself out there and telling your story, isn't it? Because it's, it's so much more difficult to, um, to fall back into that trap once you've, once you've told people what you're about, because they then get inspired by you. They want to be like you. And then, you know, and then if you turn around and change that, it's a little bit complicated. I remember when I, um, <laughs> I had a drink yeah. after, I had a drink after three years of not drinking and I just remember the jiggery pokery going on in my head. It was like, it was like, oh man, I'm, 
I'm going to have to teach people to moderately drink because I just had a drink. <laughs> and then luckily it only lasted a couple of weeks and I, and I, and I got back to normal, but it does, it does affect so many things. Um, yeah, it does. I was talking for sure. I was talking to, uh, I asked this question the other day to our strivers, um, you know, about, about day ones, I was saying, Hey, do you, what is this score here? Do we just start or do we have to prepare for it? And Sue, uh, said something that I thought was quite interesting. She said, um, looking back now, she said, she's got like uh, close to 200 days under her belt. Right. So she's like, looking back now, Yuli kept banging on to me about that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be in the pub because it was always dragging me back in and I was always defending my, my right to be in the pub. She said, now I can look back in hindsight and I can see that I would have made quicker progress had I listened to you and not gone to the pub, knowing that I could go back and revisit it at some point in the future when I'm stronger. <clears throat> so just that was a, a really big light bulb moment for her, you know, like a, a crystal ball moment. If only I had this crystal ball back then. What is it about being sober um, that makes you laugh, you know, that, that you used to be so hooked on this value that you got out of it, that you now look back and think, wow, that just didn't exist. Or it certainly wasn't as valuable as I thought it was. The value of drinking. Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> I think it's what so many women young and old have with children or not children. And that is the lie that alcohol tells you that it is a stress reliever. Right. And I just think that's the biggest one. We drink and I'm going to say we, I'm going to speak for, I'm going to speak for myself. I am a 44 year old white woman who, you know, started drinking heavily in college and it continued for 25 years. We mm -hmm. drink to be social. We drink to fit in. We drink for so many reasons. You know, we drink sometimes because it tastes good. You know, if you don't have a complex relationship with alcohol, you're more likely to drink because it tastes good. But one of the biggest reasons we drink is because we want to check out. We want to relax. Right. And as, as women, there's, this whole thing I mentioned it before the mommy wine culture of you know your life is so hard you can't get through it without this adorable bottle of pink wine that's going to take away your problems and it has a beautiful label and it's a pretty color and you deserve it um and I bought into that for years and the thing is is that it's a lie it's a lie because you end up feeling awful you know, if you're someone who doesn't just have a glass or two, um, the lie, then, then, you know, you're feeling like it's going to relieve your stress and take away your problems and make you not hear your kids screaming or make you less irritated with your kids or make you less frustrated with your boss or make you less upset about the breakup you just had or help you deal with the stress of the argument with your husband or, you know, all the things like I have celebrated and mourned all of the things you can possibly imagine mm -hmm. by drinking wine. And the lie is that it does not make it better. Guess you're so angry. Doesn't it? <laughs> I remember when I, when I stopped drinking and, and then I reflected and I was like, are you serious? I've done this for three decades thinking that this provided me this value and this value and this value. And it didn't, it was just a lie. And I was just lying myself just because I was addicted. And it just like, it shook me up. That's why I created the podcast. And uh, that's why I created 1000 days sober because yeah. I was just so annoyed at seeing my friends and my family around me falling for the same lies of which 100% of them still are. So I didn't make much of an inroad in being a role model for those folks, but I, I, have, yeah. managed to, I have managed to turn a few people to the, to the light. Well, it's really tricky because I want to say that there are so many people who can benefit from being turned to the light. 
But I, I do believe there are so many people who are able to have the drink or two or even three, and they're able to feel the joy and feel the calm. They are not drinking to, to escape. They, they do enjoy the taste. They're, you know, it's, that's what I, I mean, it's my strong belief that this is so gray mm -hmm. and it's so nuanced. And I am, I think the hardest realization I had to come to, because I too don't use the term alcoholic. I don't identify with that. But I had to come to that realization and get really honest with the fact that my relationship with it did not work. There are people for whom it does work. And for me, it does not work. And it can't be what I wanted it to be, you know? Um, and so for me, that just that it just feels like an important distinction that like I am one of the people who who just um, wanted it to be something that it can't be for me. And it's been really enlightening in this sober journey to speak to people, my husband being one of them, mm -hmm. about the ways in which I view alcohol and thought about it and used it. And he doesn't relate to or identify with any of them, nor did he know that I felt that way about it because I would hide it. You know, I never would say how I really felt about it. But um, so I, I just think it's really, really interesting. But yes, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't feel angry. I feel like I'm someone, and maybe this is me being a coach, but I don't spend too much time looking back anymore with regret. I had to work through a lot of that. And I, and I have, and it wasn't easy, but I, now I just move forward. Cause you know what I think? I think. I get to choose to not drink and I don't ever have to wake up feeling all of those ways again, ever. And I am so thankful for that. And what a lovely place to leave it, Grace. Um, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate your time here. And I love the way that you have um, stop drinking and, you know, really kind of, kind of like it, it seems like, uh, it, it, it's, there's parallels there with your choice to go into life coaching and to help uh, yeah. women, in, women in particular change their lives. So, um, yes. you know, the women in the world need all the help they can get. And, uh, I, I really applaud you for doing that. So how can people find out more about you, Grace? Well, Lee, thank you so much for having me. I love what you're doing, and I just really appreciate this time. And people can find me um, at my website, which is gracebesoncoaching.com. It's B-E-A-S-O-N. Um, or on Instagram, at gracebesoncoaching. Okay, you take care of yourself, Grace, and I'll catch up with you soon. If you ever need anything, you give me a shout, okay? I sure will. Thank you, Lee, so much. You take care.